Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. When studying the book of Revelation, a common mistake is that people point to certain passages in the book and say this applies to the Roman Catholic Church, but not to the Protestant Church. Well, that begs the question, is the Protestant Church really all that? I mean, whether it's in Europe or any nation, even in America, can we honestly say that the Protestant Church is the best thing since sliced bread? Well, let's talk about that coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles, and I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. We're studying the book of Revelation, and today we're going to study the Church of Sardis, starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Let's dive right in. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do, and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. Unless you do, I will come upon you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet even in Sardis there are some who have not soiled their garments with evil deeds. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, as you remember, we're looking at each church in the book of Revelation from three points of interpretation. First, we're looking at the church itself historically and what was going on in that church in the time of John when he wrote this book. Secondly, we're looking at this church as a representation of certain time periods in the church's history for the last 2,000 years. And finally, we look at each passage of the church in each of the different churches and see what principles and applications we can draw from that church to apply to Christians and churches today. Now, in the book, in the city of Sardis, where we're reading about today, the church in Sardis, Sardis was one of the uh, historically the most important and rich and oldest cities in Asia Minor. It was very wealthy and was large, and it too had some temples, and one of them dedicated to Apollo, and one of them dedicated to a goddess that was very similar to Diana. Uh, later on, these two temples became part of a religion of the uh, the sun god and the mother moon. And so these are all tied up again into the Baal worship, the, the uh, result of Baal worship that started, you know, thousands of years before with Nimrod and his lover. So we see that same connection that we talked about with some of the other churches in Asia Minor, specifically last week when we studied the church of Thyatira. 
So it's that same type connection with the idol worship. And here in Sardis, we had some problems in John's day. In fact, let's look at it. And let's look at it, first of all, on what Jesus is saying about himself and about the church. First of all, Jesus says he is the one who has the sevenfold spirit. Now, we talked about this when we first started talking about the seven churches uh, several sessions ago. Y'all know what the sevenfold spirit is. It's talking about the attributes or the fringe benefits of the Holy Spirit gives to every believer. We learn how the sevenfold spirit includes wisdom and revelation. And we learn that from the Ephesians 1 verse 17. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 talks about the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. In Isaiah 11 too, we learn about the spirit of courage and reverence or knowledge and fear of the Lord. All these are, are kind of like fringe benefits that the Holy Spirit gives to every believer. And then we can draw on the Holy Spirit's wisdom and power and strength and, and self-discipline to help us persevere in our walk with Christ. So that's what it's referring to when Christ says, I have the sevenfold spirit. Second all, he says, he holds the seven stars. Now you remember in Revelation 1 verse 20, he interprets this for us. In Revelation 1 verse 20, it says this, this is the meaning of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when he's talking about the angels of the seven churches, again, it's referring to probably the leaders of the seven churches. It's, it's reemphasizing the fact that the pastor or the priest or even the pope is not the head of the church. They are simply servants, but Jesus holds all the pastors of the churches in his hand. He is in charge of all the angels of the churches. So it's very clearly showing that Jesus is the one who has authority over the church. And this makes sense with what we studied last time, uh, talking about how the church had grown to the point where it was putting men in place of Christ to have authority over the church. And we talked about the Nicolaitans and the movement of the Nicolaitans that was doing this, especially in the church of Thyatira and Pergamum. Now, let's look and see what Jesus says he sees or knows about this church in the time of John. He says this, I know all the things you do or all your works and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God, or most translations, to be a little bit more literal, would say your deeds are far from complete in the sight of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. So Jesus is saying, look, this church here in Sardis has a reputation of being a fantastic church. It's in a very wealthy city, which means it was probably a very wealthy church. And they had a reputation of being uh, a dynamic, growing, large, and very wealthy church. But Jesus says, hey, you've got problems. You 
are supposed to have this reputation of being alive and vibrant, but in reality, you're dead. And he says, even the, some of the things that are you have alive that are left are close to dying. And he says, wake up, wake up and strengthen those things that remain because your job is not over. You've got a lot more left to do. Now let's look at these phrases, wake up. And well, let's just read it again about what he says to the church. He says, go back. He says, wake up and go back to what you heard and believed at first. So that's the first thing. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. Now, these are three steps that I like to call that are necessary for a church to start growing again. The first thing is the believers in the church need to repent. They need to return back to what they believed at first. Whenever you're going one direction, uh, back in this time period, the, the word used for repent comes from a, a Greek word that was used like when a military column uh, like a, a troop of Roman soldiers, let's say, was marching in one way, and then the uh, sergeant, if you will, would say, repent, and the column of soldiers would do it in about face, what we call an about face, and start marching the other way. That's what the Greek word repent means. It, it is a military term, and it means to turn around. Today, we call it an about face. So he says, look, do an about face, go back to what you heard and believed at first. In other words, the truth of the gospel. Not all the false teachings that are going around in their time period, but the true gospel that they believed in when they got saved. Secondly, it says, hold to it firmly. Now that means to revive. It means to come back alive again, to wake up, to come back alive and hold on to these truths firmly, to recommit to them. And that's, that's kind of what a revival is, that you're recommitting to these truths. And then finally, he says, uh, turn to me again. In other words, go back to Jesus and restore that relationship to him. Return to him again and restore that relationship. So repentance, revival, and restoration. Those are the three steps that a church needs to take to start growing again. And in fact, those are the three steps Every believer needs to take if they want to start growing again spiritually. You have to repent of your sins and also following false teachings. And then you have to revive. You have to wake up and start clinging to what you know to be the truth. And then thirdly, you have to return to Jesus or you have to restore that relationship of fellowship, that daily walk with Jesus. And those three R's, those three steps, repent, revive, and restoration is what leads to growth again, whether it be an individual or church. That's what leads to spiritual growth and truly being uh, one of those who's being a light to the darkness and being used by God to reach others. So that's what was going on, evidently, in the time of John for the Church of Sardis. They were worldly. They were had a reputation for being rich and wealthy and had everything they need, but they really weren't doing what needed to be done, and they weren't really alive and vibrant as their reputation was. They were dying and almost dead, and they had to revive. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. 
Now, what's interesting is this, if you start looking at it from a historical standpoint and seeing what time period this church might represent in the overall history of the church for the last 2,000 years, it's pretty clear if you look at this passage compared to what we learned last time in the Church of Thyatira and even before that with Pergamum, this is coming at the end of the 1400s, the beginning of the 1500s, and it's talking about a revival from all the false teaching that the church had fallen into. The Dark Age church had fallen into several hundred years of false teaching, and they even got to the point where they had split up and said one church, it was two, the church based in Rome and the church based in Constantinople. And then eventually the church in Rome uh, authorized a, uh, an armed engagement. One of the crusades went and sacked Constantinople and the church in Rome started establishing itself as the head of the whole universal church and the Bishop of Rome started to be called the Pope or the Papa and started establishing himself as the head of the church instead of Christ. And we looked at all that and all the false teachings of selling indulgences and purgatory and the worship of Mary. We looked at all that last time. But then in the 1500s, something happened. In 1517, in fact, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed what is called the 95 Theses on the door of the church, there where he lived. And that is what historians call the beginning of the Reformation movement, the beginning of believers trying to reform the church, to revive the church. And it was the beginning of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, I say around 1500 it started, but like we talked about last time, people were already moving along in this in the 1400s. Remember, many people were, were going against the uh, false teaching of Rome. Many people were dying to try and translate the Bible into their common language, into English. Uh, we talked about how Tyndale, right at the turn, turn of the century, was being hunted down and eventually martyred for translating the Bible into English. So there was already people that were standing up to the false teachings of the church. And of course, their horrible sin of outlawing the Bible from the common person. All People were beginning to be used by God to stand up against these Nicolaitans, these bureaucrats of the church, these false teachers of the church. And they were rebelling and starting to stand up for it. But when it all came to head was when a Catholic monk stood up. He was very intelligent and he nailed his problems with what was going on with the false teaching. 95 different points and nailed them to the door of the church. And his goal originally was not to separate from the church. He wanted to revive the church. But y'all know the history and I'm not going to go through it from that moment on. The church was in conflict with these people who were standing up. The persecutions increased. They started excommunicating people. And the Protestant Reformation started you know, flowering and, and just growing. And more and more believers were leaving the Catholic Church because of all its wickedness and false teaching and becoming a revived church, 
uh, in various different nations, and it was all caused, all called the Protestant Reformation. Now, a lot of people will look at that and say, gee, the Protestant Reformation saved the church, and everything's okay now, right? The Protestants are good, and the Catholics are bad. But that's not really true. That's not really true from God's point of view. You see, in God's point of view, and what we'll be looking at in different passages in Revelation over the next several weeks, God's point of view is still that there's just one church. And within the one church, there's been all types of false teaching through its history. It goes back to the parable of the landowner. Remember the farmer who had the land and he planted uh, wheat in the land. And then his neighbor, his competitor, planted a weed called a tear. We call it a tear today, but it looked like wheat, but it didn't produce any fruit. No kernels were grown on this this weed, no wheat kernels. So it looked like wheat in the beginning, but it never would flower and, and, and have wheat kernels. So he planted that in his field. And Jesus was using it as a parable to say, this is what's going to happen in the church. You're going to have the true wheat or the true Christians. Last week, we talked about them. We called them the remnant, the small group that still holds faithful and believes and follows the scripture and keeps sincerely following the path of Christ as true disciples. This remnant, these true believers were represented by the wheat. And all the false teachers and all the false doctrine, those are represented by the tares. And Satan, the enemy, the competitor, has infiltrated the church during the dark ages with all types of false teaching and all types of uh, false leaders. But now, here in the Protestant Reformation from 1500s through the 1600s, 200 years, the 1500s and the 1600s, The Church of Sardis kind of represents that in church history. And the Protestant Reformation took off, and it was the wheat, the remnant, separating themselves out and doing what had to be done so they could worship God freely and have the Bible in their own language. Again, to emphasize what I was saying, God looks at it as one church, and he looks at two groups within this church, the remnant, the wheat, but those who are following the false teachings, the tares, the true believers, and the false believers, those who hold to a form of the religion but don't really believe it or follow it. And that is how God sees the church throughout the book of Revelation. And that's how we need to start seeing it now, that there was a one group, the remnant, the true believers in the church of Sardis, and in throughout history, during the Dark Ages, a true group of believers that finally got strong enough and brave enough to break away from the false teaching and bring revival to the church. But before we sit here and say, oh, that means everything's great with the Protestants, it's really not the case. It's really not the case. Let's talk about that. Let's go on and start looking at what we can learn from this passage in modern-day America today, in the American church, in the Protestant church. Let's look at it. For instance, do we need to start growing again spiritually 
in the church in America. Absolutely. We've talked about how, you know, the church attendance has been eroding for 10 years or more. We've talked about how the church has gotten more and more worldly in America, how we're assimilating the culture instead of changing the culture. We've talked about how we are slowly and surely becoming more like the world instead of more and like Christ. So yes, the church in America is having trouble. Some of the same trouble here. You see, you think about all the mega churches. You think about all the mega churches that are going on, and you think about the model that we've used in American Christianity for so long. And then you listen to this phrase. I know the things you do that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Doesn't that sound like what's going on in America today? I want to tell you something. This, this truth is why I became a pastor, because I truly am convinced that the church in America has left the right path. We have gone astray, and through the modern uh, mega church model, we've become more and more involved in just having a huge organization that makes lots of money. We have a reputation of being vibrant and great and fantastic, just like the Church of Sardis. But in reality, we're dying. And there's very little left that's not completely dead. And if we don't wake up in America, Christianity is going to start falling by the wayside in huge numbers. Churches will start closing and more and more people in America will not believe, not hear the gospel because more and more churches are failing in their task. And it's happening because we're like the Church of Sardis. We think we're all that. We think we're great. We think all the problems of the Catholic Church are no longer us because we're part of the Protestant Reformation. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, the same problems that they had that, and the same temptations that they had during all the dark ages are the same things that we're tempted with, and we're following the same suit. We've talked about the spirit of Jezebel last week in the church of Thyatira. Are not churches today, Protestant churches, plagued lots of times by a family member or a family or one or two individuals who behind the scenes are exerting power in the church and influencing it in a bad way. Yeah, we talked about that last week. It's real common. Let's talk about uh, the gospel. You know, the gospel, like I said, is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way through salvation is through Jesus. That's the only way to salvation, by believing in Jesus. And yet, there's that study that I talked about where the vast majority, over 50% of Christians in America today, disagree with the Bible that all sins are sin. In other words, there's some sins of the Bible list that believers no longer believe are sinful. For instance, a lot of Christians in America think, oh, you know, sex before marriage really isn't that bad of a sin. It's not really a sin. A lot of people who are claiming to be Christians today say, well, you know, living uh, without being, living together without being married is not a sin. A lot of believers today who claim to be Christians say, well, homosexuality is not a sin. 
or, you know, a little lie now and then is not a sin. And we have started to say that not everything that the Bible says is a sin is a sin. In fact, we've lost the whole definition of what sin is. We think sin is doing something, but sin is a condition. Sin is a spiritual disease where we're dead, and everything we do is dishonoring to God. That's the condition. Now, we all are born with this spiritual deadness, this spiritual disease called sin, and in one person, the symptoms of this disease may show up by gossiping or cheating. Another person may show up in uh, adultery or sex outside of marriage. Uh, another person it may show up in you know, stealing or cheating on their taxes. It shows up. The disease is the same for all people, but it shows up in different symptoms in different people, depending on each individual. But we've lost the concept of that sin. We think people are good and they may do sins. But the Bible teaches that we all are dead in our sins, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, just like the church in the dark ages, we are redoing our definition of sin. So yeah, the Protestants have that problem. What about false teaching? There was false teaching of like the, of purgatory. And I'm not going to go into that again, but we talked about that last time. Purgatory, that was a false teaching that came up during the dark ages. Were any false teachings or false doctrines taught and came up during the Protestant Reformation? Absolutely. Calvinism. The belief that God predestines certain people to go to heaven or hell, instead of saying that person's choice is what determines that. See, Jesus said that it's the person's choice that everyone, anyone who believes in him will be saved. But the teachings of Calvin during the Reformation movement says, no, God pre-selects and predetermines and predestines who will be saved and goes to heaven and who will go to hell. So that's a false doctrine, Calvinism, that came up during the Reformation movement. What about the Bible? You know, they actually outlawed the Bible in the Dark Ages. The church leaders, the false church leaders, the popes outlawed the Bible during the Dark Ages. Well, let's look at Protestants. Let's look at America. Do we outlaw the Bible? Well, no. But do you remember that uh, statistic I talked about, oh, about four sessions ago, in session number four? It was a statistic that talked about Christians in America and how we viewed the Bible. Only 20%, and this is a recent survey done by Lifeway, only 20% of Christians in America say they have read the entire Bible, cover to cover, in other words, at least once. In other words, only 20% of believers in America say they've read the Bible once. 80% have never read the Bible from cover to cover. No wonder Christians don't know what they believe. They've never read the Bible. It gets worse. Only 22% of believers say they read a little bit of the Bible on a daily basis. We're not talking about the whole Bible, just a little bit. Only 22% say they read a section of the Bible on a daily basis. So the vast majority of believers never have a regular time where they read some of the Bible and spend time with God. 
78% of the believers in America don't do that. 80% of the believers have never read the entire Bible. So what's worse, outlawing the Bible or having more Bibles in the history of the world available to you, but you refuse to read them? See, America, we're rich. We're just like Sardis. We've got everything we want. We've got a great reputation. We've got more Bibles than ever in the history of the world. But we don't read it. People died for the Bible. People were martyred to translate the Bible into English. People were killed by the Dark Age Church to try and get the Scripture out to the common person because the Nicolaitans were trying to stop that. The popes, the people conquerors, were trying to stop that. But now we have free access to the Bible, but we don't read it in America. This is a huge sin, y'all. This is a huge sin. We are, are so complacent about our faith. You know, we think we're great, but we're not. We think we're the best thing since sliced bread but we're not. We think we're all that, but I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, the church in America is in desperate need of a true revival, of a true spiritual change in their outlook. The church in America is just like the church of Sardis. We are dying, and we don't even admit it. These words that Jesus spoke to the church of Sardis could apply to us today in America. Verse 2, or excuse me, starting verse 1, I know all the things you do, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up, strengthen what little remains, for what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. Or like I said, the literal translation is your deeds are far from complete in the sight of God. Now, isn't that the truth? See, here in America, we think we can just sit on the pews and do nothing, that we've arrived, that we've done everything we need to do. We've gotten saved. We give to the church. We can now sit on the pew. We go to a mega church and have a great show, and that's it. That's not what Jesus says. Our job is far from done. We are supposed to take the gospel, the light, and into the darkened corners. We are supposed to help people who are hurting and show them the way that they can have salvation. We're supposed to help the poor. We're supposed to show them that not only can we help them physically, but that God can help them spiritually. We're supposed to bring healing to the hurting instead of pain and suffering and making their state worse. The church in America is so self-centered. We are not doing that. And our job is not over. And just like the church of Sardis, we too need a change. We need to have those three R's in our life. We need to have the repentance, the revival, and be restored. Just like it says in Sardis, we need to go back to what we heard and believed at first. We know what the gospel was. We know what happened during the Jesus movement. We know what we were taught. We need to go back to that, what we learned about the truth of Scripture, the gospel of God, and we need to hold to it. We need to go back to what we heard and believed at first. 
That is the repentance. We need to repent of our sins, our worldliness, and our false teachings and go back to what we heard at first. The second thing is we need to hold to it firmly. We need to revive and become alive, wake up and start holding on to these truths firmly. And finally, we need to turn back to Jesus and restore this fellowship. Being a Christian is not just going to church once a month and saying, yeah, I've got my fire insurance. Being a Christian is saying, I will let Jesus be the Lord, the boss of my life. Remember? We've talked about this. Being a Christian means I'm going to follow Jesus, be his disciple, and follow his teachings fervently. That so, what, so much so that you are known to be like Jesus. That's what the word Christian literally means, to be like Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, are the vast majority of Christians in America truly like Jesus? No, we're not. We need to repent. We need to revive, and we need to restore our attitude to one of a daily walk in fellowship with Jesus, where we truly are his disciples, where we truly follow him and let him be the Lord of our life, the boss of our life on a daily basis. So what does Jesus say will happen to those who listen to his words and overcome? What's the message to the overcomers? In verse 4, he says, Yet even in Sardis there are some. In some translations, it says, Even in Sardis there are a few. See, this is that remnant, that small group that we talked about last time. Yet even in Sardis there is some, the few, the remnant, who have not soiled their garments with evil deeds. In other words, they haven't corrupted the faith. They haven't corrupted the true teachings of Christ. They are still pure. They will walk with me in white. Of course, we all know that the robes of white symbolize righteousness. So they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Now, what's the book of life? Well, the book of life is mentioned about eight times in the Bible. Nine, if you count an obscure passage in Daniel. Psalm 69, verse 28, it's mentioned. Daniel 12, verse 1, it's mentioned. And then the rest of them are all in the New Testament. Philippians 4, verse 3, talks about the book of life. And then the rest of them, all the remaining six, are all in the book of Revelation. The first one is here. And there's later on, and we'll study them more and more as we go on through the chapters, this phrase that keeps occurring, the book of life. Well, the book of life is a record of all those who are saved. That's right. The book of life is a record of all those who are saved. Let's look at Revelation 20, verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Revelation 20, starting verse 12. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and the death and grave gave up the dead in them. They were all judged according to the deeds, and death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Hell, in other words. And anyone whose name was not 
found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone who was not recorded in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Okay, now listen to verse 27. Nothing of chapter 21, verse 27, it's the next chapter, last verse. Nothing evil be allowed to enter, talking about heaven, no one who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the Lamb's book of life, the book of life is a uh, list of names. You know, it's a probably a symbolic list of names. I don't think God needs to write things down like I do. I don't think God forgets. But it's a book that records all the names of the true believers. And if your name's not in that book, your destination is hell. If your name is in that book, your destination is heaven. And notice how he says to those who are victorious, to those who don't follow the false teachings, they will be in the book of life. They will never have their names erased or blotted out, depending on your translation. They will never have their names scratched off, erased from the book of life. You see, as long as you believe in Jesus and follow his truth, your name will stay in the book of life. You're one of the victorious ones. But the dangers of staying in a worldly situation like the Church of Sardis you know, that other group has to take this as a warning. The remnant, the victorious, will never have their name scratched out because they will die still believing in Jesus. What about the others? Those in Sardis that did not wake up. Those who were living with a reputation, oh yeah, I'm so great, but they're really not. They're not following Jesus. Those who have started accepting the false teachings of the Nicolaitans, those who have perverted the true teachings of the Bible and the gospel of Christ. What's going to happen to them? Eventually, I think those people's hearts get so hardened that they walk away from the faith altogether. And when a person walks away and turns his back on God and then dies, his name is marked off that book of life. And so when judgment comes, it's not there in the book. So it's a warning to us, too. But it's also encouragement. Now, if you're a part of the remnant, if you're a brother or sister who is sincerely trying to grow with God every day, and you see the evil in the churches around you, my word to you is don't give up. Don't give up. Keep studying the Bible. Keep sharing the truth with your friends and family. Keep the faith. Because Jesus has said, if you do that, you'll be victorious. And when you die, you'll find that your name was in the book of life and never scratched out. Not only that, he says, I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Wow. You see, if you're part of the remnant, and we'll see later on in history, that that comes with a price. You know, a lot of people in the worldly churches will look down on you and say you're, you're, oh, too enthusiastic, that you're a little bit of a fanatic when it comes to your faith. But they're just cold and dying. But they'll say, no, you're being too literal with what the Bible says. Or no, you're, you're just a little fanatical. You're, you're being too obtuse with it. No, you're just following Scripture. You're not tolerant enough. No, it's not that. You're very tolerant. 
You want to share God's grace with everybody, but you're just following the word. You see, you'll receive this type of uh, persecution from other people in these churches that are so worldly. But also, if our nation or any nation throughout history ever went under Christian persecution, this was the group, the remnant, that stood by, stood their ground, and suffered for it, was thrown into prison. This is the group, the remnant, that during the dark ages of the church suffered during all the uh, inquisitions, through the trials, and many of them jailed and many of them martyred, like some of the great men of faith that were translating the Bible for us, like Tyndale. So if you're part of this remnant, hold fast, keep your faith. And remember, not only will you be clothed in white and find your name in the book of life, but one day when you die and you go to heaven and someone calls your name, it says right here, Jesus, it says, but I will announce, Jesus is talking, he says, I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. So you'll be up in heaven and you'll hear your name called out and you're going to hear Jesus, the son of God, the creator of the universe say, hey, hey, that person you just called out, they're one of mine. And when he says that, the father's going to look to you and welcome you into heaven. That is what comes to those who hold on to their faith. That is what comes to those who are victorious. And it's my prayer that happens to you, brothers and sisters. Make sure, no matter what the reputation of your church is, make sure you're a part of the remnant and that you're holding fast to God's word. And one day you'll Hear Jesus say that about you, that you are one of his. So I hope you enjoyed today's session. And in the meantime, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.